Out Alive is made possible by Outside Plus subscribers. iOS users can now explore content from more than 30 publications in the Outside Plus app. Browse gear reviews, training plans, travel guides, videos, and the survival stories you love. Download the Outside Plus app now from the App Store and use your Outside Plus login to get started. Outside Plus, the one subscription to fuel all your adventures. Welcome to the latest episode of Survival Shorts, where we explore stories in the world of survival with analysis and expert commentary. Today, we're going to discuss an incident that has raised some interesting questions about the personal responsibilities of hikers in emergency situations. We're going to share what happened, and then we'll have a survival expert walk us through exactly what we could do differently in a similar scenario. I spoke to the journalist who initially reported on this story for Backpacker. We want to make it clear that this story is based on the court documents from this case, and we did not interview the defendant involved. My name is Adam Roy, and I'm the executive editor of Backpacker. So Phil Powers, a hiker who had a pretty serious mishap and survival scenario. I know you wrote about it for Backpacker, so can you give me a rundown of what happened? Philip Powers was this 37-year-old hiker from Arizona, and he ran into trouble on a hike in 2018. He set out from this trailhead in this area about an hour northwest of Sedona. His goal was to hike a 17-mile trail. His guidebook rated it as moderate. At first, you know, he hiked to what's called the Taylor Cabin, which is this stone hut from the 19th century. This was about 14 miles in. A few miles beyond that, he ran into trouble. He basically lost the trail, couldn't get back on it. He decided he had to backtrack to the cabin. Things went really wrong from this point. He had not brought a headlamp, and while he had a navigation program on his phone, he had not downloaded any maps for it, and he didn't have a paper map or compass, so he really had no way of finding the trail again. Do you know what he did have with him in terms of gear? Yes, I do, because that's all laid out in the court docs. About a gallon of water, a handful of snacks, a battery-powered cell phone charger, and a handful of camping gear, a sleeping bag, a hammock, some stove fuel, two large knives, or I should say a large knife and a machete. A really large knife. A really large knife. And so he stayed the night in Taylor Cabin. Then what happened? He was getting dehydrated by this point. He had trouble sleeping, he said, due to having some pretty severe leg cramps. He also ran into trouble with some wildlife. He found a rattlesnake underneath the bed in the cabin and decided he had to kill it, Yikes. which he did with his machete. He ended up moving outside to sleep and attempting to set a signal fire, which he set on the ground despite there being a fire ring outside of the cabin. It's not entirely clear what he thought he was going to accomplish by setting the signal fires, given that it was night and no one was going to be able to see the smoke. And so then what happened next? So the next day, he woke up fairly early. He couldn't find the trail to continue on. So he basically left the cabin early and attempted to backtrack to where he had started. He ran out of water, he ran out of food, and his leg cramps started to become just unbearable. It was really hot that day, too. It's worth mentioning. It had reached about 91 degrees, and he had run out of water at this point. So eventually, at some point, he decided he had to set a second signal fire, but he was going to make this one a lot bigger. So what he did was gather a bunch of brush and pile it around a standing dead tree. He lit the pile on fire, hoping that it would send the whole dead tree up in flames. He stuck around for about an hour, decided that this fire was not going to bring any help, and set off toward the trailhead again. So a while after that, he spotted a plane circling and then a helicopter. He attempted to set another emergency fire. This one more or less immediately went out. Eventually, he saw a helicopter circling 
took off his orange underwear, put it on a stick, and started waving it around. And the helicopter did see him at that point land and evacuate him. Powers was taken to the hospital where he is diagnosed with moderate dehydration and the beginnings of renal failure and breakdown of his muscles. The helicopter that spotted Powers was there because that second fire, he said, actually caught fire and spread into a bona fide wildfire. The fire burned 230 acres and threatened a watershed in Flagstaff. The fire was eventually contained after nine days, and Powers was charged with a series of misdemeanors for starting the blaze. Powers got hit with a fine of nearly $300,000. Wow, that is quite a story. Thanks for sharing that. You're very welcome, Louisa. The courts ordered Philip Powers to pay a hefty restitution to cover the cost of fighting the fire. While his defense argued that his actions were a result of life-threatening circumstances, the judge wrote in her ruling that Powers had essentially created his own emergency. From the court document, it's clear that Powers made more than one mistake before he even contemplated starting a signal fire. And while we could talk for hours about preparedness and avoiding emergency scenarios in the first place, we'll focus today's discussion on signal fires and fire safety. Jesse Krebs knows a thing or two about those topics. As a former Air Force SEER instructor, which stands for Survival, Evasion, Resistance, and Escape, she taught soldiers how to get home safely from behind enemy lines. She's also a former backcountry mountain guide, wilderness therapist, and is the founder of OWL Skills, whose mission is to educate and empower women and other underrepresented demographics in the skills of surviving emergencies in global wilderness environments. At SEER training, the main thing we worked with was the five basic needs. And the first and the most important, number one and done, is signaling. So what are you going to use to signal with if you end up in trouble? There's a big difference between survival and all of the other outdoor activities, right? Survival means something went wrong. And now you want to get back to civilization. If you signal properly and quickly, you're done. You're out of the situation. There are three primary methods of signaling. Electronic is one, it's huge. There's so many different electronics that we have now. And sometimes they don't work in your area or you lose it or you break it or the battery dies, right? A second is pyrotechnic, which our friend used. Uh, However, doing it in a safe manner. And so during the day, it would be smoke, either white or black smoke, depending what your background is. There's also man-made things like road flares or marine flares that you can use. And at night, it's going to be fire itself, the flame itself. So understanding the principles around that and which one you can use with pyrotechnics, depending on your situation. The third type is ground air signals. And these are things like a signal blanket, like a mylar or a space blanket and laying that out on the ground or a signal mirror, which you can flash and can be seen for many miles or laying out either a V or an X on the ground. So those are three primary types of signaling, pyrotechnic, electronic, and ground air. Thank you so much. That is so helpful. In the case of Philip Powers, the fine was due as a restitution for the cost to put out the fire that was inadvertently set. Can you talk to us a little bit about best practices, specifically with pyrotechnic signaling? It really would suck. I know in my mind, like if I were saved, but in the process, I created a fire that burned down people's homes and hurt people. 
that's not what I'm going for. And I understand, especially when someone gets really dehydrated, it's hard to make those decisions and to be rational. But more experience and understanding of how fire works and what you need to do to keep it safe and keep it from spreading when you don't mean it to. So it sounds like he did have a fire circle. There was an area where it was pretty open and there wasn't much that could catch fire at the cabin that he stayed at. And that would have been the optimum place for him to light a fire. And the whole environment was really dry. And often when you're in those really dry desert-like areas, you can find spots that have large areas of slick rock, which is just sandstone, exposed stone. And if you can find a flat area like that has at least 10 feet out in every direction from the where you're from the edge of your fire, that's what you're looking for. And if you don't have it, you need to make it. Getting down to bare mineral soil or rock, 10 feet out minimum from the outside edge of that fire circle. He had a very dry background. It was probably mostly a darkish color. And so white smoke would have stood out the best. So if that's the case, I'm going to use green vegetation to create that white smoke. So once you have a fire going or even before you light it, go out and gather about chest high pile of green vegetation. And this can be the lower branches of trees. You can take off about the lower one-third of the branches of a conifer especially and still have the tree survive and be okay. I could use plants, right? I could go along a marsh you have around you. Just grab vegetation. Also make sure you've got some way to put it out. And in his case, he didn't have much water around. So that can literally be soil sand, right? So I don't want duff. I don't want anything that has vegetation in it. I'm looking for mineral soil. So we want stuff that looks sandy, that doesn't have any pine needles or anything else in it. We just want, we want good sand or dirt. You can use your jacket, your shirt, put it on the ground, pile a bunch in and have a good solid pile next to you that you can quickly, if you do see a fire spreading somewhere, you can dump that on it. Water is fantastic. He didn't have that option in this case. Another thing he, you can do is put up some kind of a spark arrester. The smoke will go around whatever you put overhead, but sparks will tend to go up and come back down. So in the military, we would use parachute material, which is just ripstop nylon. It burns very easily. You can still use that as a spark arrester because of the thermal dynamics. So if I'm worried about sparks going out and flying away, I'm going to rig up about six, eight feet over top of that fire, directly over it. I'm going to string up some kind of a, a tarp or a, a poncho rain gear if I have it, anything I have that's going to be directly over the flame and the sparks and the heat go up and hit that and then bounce off and come right back down to the ground. It keeps them from flying off and potentially starting a fire further out. It's better to do that if fire danger is really high than to not. So getting all that kind of thing in place, then starting your fire, making sure it's a good hot fire. You want to wait for a time when you think someone's actually going to see it. Unfortunately, with pyrotechnics, there have been many situations where people lit a fire, nobody sees them. So pyrotechnics is one of those things where it's not going to last forever, right? I'm going to have to keep gathering more vegetation or whatever it is. Or if I'm using something like to make black smoke, I've only got so much of what's creating that black smoke. So making sure you're waiting for a time when you feel like it's optimal, when there's you actually see a plane in the air or there's a ridge line that you're sure there's hikers on because there's a big trail up there, whatever it is, uh, wait till there's a good time to do it and you're pretty sure someone's going to see it. And then definitely making sure as best you can that it's out before you left. At Sierra, we would make sure it was cold to the touch all the way around. You can use rocks or sticks and we would dig down and stir everything up and make sure the ground was cold to the touch all the way around before we left the area. 
Is there anything else about this particular story that you think is critical for our listeners to know? I hope folks really understand signaling. That is so critical and is the main defining thing between survival and all the other outdoor activities. That's the number one thing you need to do and be able to do effectively. Knowing ground air signals and pyrotechnics and how to do those safely, that's really important to keep people safe out there. We're modern humans. We're not used to just living off the land and being able to whip out everything. Having just a small survival kit, and it can actually just be a few ounces, can make a huge difference between your survival and making sure that you can signal and get help. Help rescues, rescuers find you. Let's help them find us and get us out of there. <laughs> learn more about practical survival skills from Jesse Krebs on our website at backpacker.com slash survival, where she'll be a regular contributor. You should also check out her survival school at owlsskills.com. This episode of Survival Shorts from Out Alive was produced and written by me, Louisa Albanese, with production and editing by Zoe Gates. Sound design and scoring was by Jason Patton. Do you have a story or a burning survival question that you want us to answer? You can email me at outalive at outsideinc.com. And if you enjoy Out Alive, then you can help us by following the show and leaving us a review. 